Welcome to another episode of Eclectic Intellection. Today we are going to talk about French republicanism and the universalism embedded in this ideology. More specifically, we are going to address the limits of this universalism by considering the experiences of a segment of the French population whose parents had immigrated to France from North Africa. My guest today is Jean Beeman, who is an associate professor of uh, sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. We are going to spend most of this hour or so uh, discussing her recent book, which is titled Citizen Outsider, Children of North African Immigrants in France. Uh, the book was published by the University of California Press in 2017. Also, uh, my guest uh, received her PhD in sociology at uh, Northwestern University, and uh, she is currently an editor of HNet Black Europe, an associate editor of the journal Identities, Global Studies in Culture and Power, and also a corresponding editor for the journal Metropolitics, Metropolitique. So, Jean Beeman, welcome to the podcast. Uh, could you extend uh, this very short um, introduction by telling us more about your academic background and also how you initially decided to write about the citizen outsider in France? Yes. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me on your program. I'm really delighted to, to be having this conversation. So I usually can kind of talk about my background as it relates to writing this book and doing this research um, as it relates to my personal background because they're very interwoven. So essentially, I started learning the French language uh, many, many years ago when I was in middle school. And, um, you know, I, I, I still love the French language. I love the sound of the French language. And I continued it through middle school and through high school. Um, and then I was sort of um, got really curious about what France society is like. I had never traveled outside of the United States growing up. And so when I was in undergrad, I did a uh, year-long study abroad program in Paris. Uh, so it was my junior year abroad. I was about 20 years old. And during that time, I became fluent in French. Um, I was living with a white French family in Paris. And among other things, it was a really fascinating year because I had a lot of interesting experiences being African-American or Black American in France and sort of trying to, for the first time, sort of realize the, the distinction, such as it was, between being Black or being visibly non-white and being American. And so a lot of the sort of experiences I had in Paris were similar to the ones I have or still have in the United, here in the United States, um, but the implications were somewhat different. So just to give a quick uh, example, I would often have the experience of being followed around in stores um, with the presumption of sort of criminality or that I might be shoplifting something. But then when someone, when the, when the shopkeeper would hear my, you know, speaking French with an obvious non-native accent, they sort of switched their their treatment of me and sort of had a more favorable uh, view of me, right? And so that got me thinking, you know, very, very slowly about, um, you know, what what is 
or got me really curious really about um, what does it mean to be a black person who is French? I mean, versus, you know, the black person I am who is not is not French. And also during that time, I started to very slowly read about the history of African-American expatriates in Paris and learn a little bit about um, their experiences as, as people who are minorities in the United States, but also minorities in France and different ways that that was read. So that was my experience when I was an undergrad living in Paris for a year Years later, when I was in my graduate doctoral program, also at Northwestern University, um, I started to sort of think about this more systematically or these questions more systematically. And I started to read um, some of the sociological work that had been done as it relates to identity in France, very broadly construed. So I read Michelle Lamont's work. I read Louis Quacon's work. Um, and at least at the time, there was more work about um, sort of recent migrants to France or first generation immigrants, if you will, and less about um, subsequent generations, second and third generations. And so that kind of like, you know, got me sort of thinking about, you know, what is it like to what are the experiences like of, you know, racial and ethnic minorities in France who are, you know, born and raised in France, who are not sort of recent migrants. So I moved back to Paris for about a year and essentially just went in to try to, that was sort of the question of my dissertation of, you know, how, what is it like to be a racial ethnic minority for, specifically for um, children of North African or Maghreban immigrants? So people who are sort of descendants from France's former uh, colonies in the Maghreb, specifically Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. And so when I went into the the field side into the field, if you will, I kind of went into it with open eyes and not trying to bring in any kind of, as much as I could, not bring in any sort of American conceptualizations of, you know, race and racism, marginalization, or any of these kinds of things. But um, essentially what happened, or two things happened somewhat quickly. One, I had a lot of difficulty finding people willing to be interviewed or willing to talk to me. And I think in retrospect, that makes sense because, you know, I was a foreigner as an American and there's a sort of a necessary, uh, sort of um, justifiable hesitation to try trusting outsiders. Um, and so because of that, I ended up using snowball sampling. And so essentially what that meant was that I contacted people through different networks, different associations. And then once I was able to gain their trust and get them to talk to me, they would introduce me to other people. And so it just meant that that's sort of how one of the sort of main thorough lies in the book came about, which is focusing specifically on the middle class segment of this second generation population. The second thing I'll just quickly bring up that happened was even though I was very conscious of not bringing in American conceptualizations of race and racism and these other sorts of things, many of my respondents interface with me as a black American. And by that, I mean, they sort of, you know, asked me about my own identity, my own experiences, but also sort of made a lot of uh, references to similarities that they felt they, they had with, you know, African-Americans or with other black populations around the world. So it ended up being this 
thing that like race, as even though I wasn't bringing it up, and even though like ostensibly that doesn't you know exist in the same way in France as it does. Um, in the United States or in other societies, many of my respondents are very conversant in this language and very, like literally and figuratively and very conversant in sort of their experiences of being treated differently because of, um, of their race or ethnic background. So there's obviously a lot at stake uh, in this discussion. And I wanted to ask you how you would answer that question. So, so what, what is at stake for you in this discussion? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So I guess I'd say a couple things. I mean, one, I think pulling out from the from this particular context, from the context of France, from the context of that I described in my book, I think it's one of the things I think is really in, at stake for all sort of plural or diverse societies is sort of how do you create a cohesive natural community while also paying attention to the sort of, you know, the particularities of different people's experiences, right? And I think it's really interesting to think about this um, in France as a contrast with the United States, because of course the United States is a very different model of identity politics than, than does France. And so, you know, in the United States, we had these kinds of African-American, Asian-American kinds of identities, but in France, there's, there's not that. And so I think, you know, and the idea is the idea being that everyone should just be seen as French. So I think it, it got me thinking, or I think one of the things is, is sort of a perennial question of mine is, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that tension between sort of, you know, what is sort of common or unites people under a particular society while also acknowledging the different differences that are um, between individuals that are also significant. So I think that's one of the things that's at stake. The second thing that's somewhat related to that is sort of also thinking about the role of categories and state level categories. So again, I think uh, one of the things I find fascinating about France is the lack of those categories. But of course, you know, what my work and others work um, gets at is how that doesn't necessarily mean that the categories themselves are not marked, even if they're not marked by the government or marked by the state. And I do think um, it's interesting to think about, you know, what say, what does having state categories, like what work does that do for people in terms of sort of how they're treated, how they see themselves, how they identify, how they sort of uh, attempt to combat discrimination and racism, these sorts of things. So I think it's, I, I'm really hoping to kind of be part of a broader conversation around how we should understand or what's the best way to understand these questions of differences, of individual differences in a plural or diverse society. And the last thing I'll, I, would, I guess I'll quickly add is also sort of thinking about the role of history um, in everyday life or in present life. So I guess one of the things that, um, is, was interesting to me from my research is thinking about the ways in which, you know, part of how my respondents are treated or how they understand themselves in contemporary French society is very much in conversation with France's colonial history and very much in conversation with how France chooses to address or, you know, in this case, not address its colonial history, right? And so what does it mean to have people who are sort of, you know, literally like, walking around as, you know, visible, if you will, reminders of this colonial history that is a very sort of dark period um, in, in French history. And again, I think this is also something that we can extrapolate to other societies, including the United States. More broadly, then, it's about uh, the stakes are how to maybe build, articulate, and maintain cohesion in, in a plural society. And then you're looking at the role of racism, ideology, uh, and history mm -hmm. in that process, broadly mm -hmm. speaking. Yes. 
let's maybe get then to to the argument um, of the book uh, and see how you explore these questions uh, very specifically in France through this research. So uh, how, how would you describe the book's overarching argument? So um, essentially the overarching argument of the book, one is sort of bringing back race and ethnicity as explanatory frameworks for understanding marginalization or marginality in French society, right? So um, oftentimes, I mean, you know, my work is in conversation with, you know, existing work that talks about um, marginalization in France and in Europe, uh, too, to a, to a certain extent, as a question of class or socioeconomic status. So by focusing on a middle class segment of the population, so people who are, you know, do not have uh, financial precarity, are sort of, you know, solidly middle class, have stable middle class jobs, are well educated, and to think about how their experiences of being marginalized, being marked as different, cannot be explained with these other frameworks. So it's not to say that, you know, class is not a significant variable, but rather I think we paid way too much attention to class and socioeconomic status and our understandings of marginality. And we need to pay more attention to the role of race and racism, even outside the absence of the, in the existence of these uh, categories, in the absence of these categories. Um, the second point I'll, uh, the second point I'd make in terms of the overarching argument is I really I use this framework of cultural citizenship in the book to try to get at this again, this question of how do we think about or how should we like sociologically think about populations that are technically citizens that are legally citizens, but are still continually treated or feel as though they're treated as if they're on the margins of mainstream society or are continually sort of relegated to the margins of mainstream society, right? And so thinking about, um, and, you know, when I was sort of doing a lot of my research, I was thinking back to, for example, um, you know, the French language textbooks I had, um, I had in previous classes, you know, in high school, et cetera. And they almost, they rarely pr depicted uh, a non-white person, right? And so thinking about, you know, how my respondents internalize that, of like who can represent France, who can, who is seen as a French person. And I think the framework of cultural citizenship is really helpful in understanding that. So that even if people can ha technically or legally be citizens, can legally be French, technically be French, they still are not culturally seen as French. They're still see culturally seen as outside of what it means to be French, right? And so um, I think this also has implications for understanding, for sort of hopefully a more robust discussion of how marginalization operates, even for people who are technically part of, of mainstream society. On page four, um, there's a really uh, interesting sentence. So uh, this is what you write on page four. You say, I laid to rest the notion of a French exceptionalism regarding distinctions based on race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. I examine how a population that is legally and technically French is not considered culturally French and is therefore excluded from popular imaginations of who a French person is. Uh, so that, that's that's actually two sentences, but uh, that sort of summarizes again that this perspective that, that you're mentioning about um, marginalization and this kind of inclusion and exclusion. Uh, again, as, as the the title, right? Citizen outsider. So, so there's right. a citizen element, there's the element right. of inclusion, but then there's still pushed outside to a significant degree. So could we maybe explore, uh, there's so much I want to ask you about this overarching argument, but before I get to my more specific questions, um, could you maybe, is there an example um, that could illustrate this argument 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think. So I can think of um, one respondent, uh, Safia, who um, I'll give maybe two quick examples uh, of her of her experience uh, that I think sort of kind of gets at this tension or gets at this sort of distinction. So um, Safia is uh, was born in Paris and you know lives in a bon- now lives in a banlieue of Paris. But she was telling me, um, you know, she's born in France. Uh, considers herself French, but whatever she's sort of, you know, out with her kids, people ask her, you know, what are, what are you really like? What's your real background? It's like, where do you really come from? And she'll say, oh, I'm from Paris or this or that or the other thing. And they'll be like, no, no, but where are you really from? Right. And so this sort of reinforcing to her that she can't actually be French. And she sees that people ask her the same thing about her children as well. And then another time she was telling me at one, one of the conversations we had, uh, she went to see, to try to rent an apartment uh, with her husband, who is of Algerian origin. She's of Tunisian origin. And so essentially they uh, call the landlord to come see the apartment. And then when they get there, you know, the landlord's like, oh, I'm, I I just rented it to a French couple. It was just easier to rent it to them. And she's like, but well, we're French too. It's Again, it's like not a question of class. It's like, we, you know, she was saying, you know, we had enough money to rent this apartment um, with both of her income when she's a journalist and her husband's a, a banker. But they were still seen as not the desirable tenants solely because they were not seen as French. I mean, that's like a very explicit example of a landlord or prospective landlord um, telling, telling them that. And then, um, you know, it's also really interesting uh, I sort of end the book a little bit with this, another story about Sophia about um, her experiences being stopped on a train. And um, so partly what that's about is this idea of it's perfectly legitimate for the police to stop people and ask, well, I should say perfectly legitimate. It's relatively legitimate uh, for people, for the police to stop people and ask for their identification. And there's been a lot of research in recent years about how this disproportionately affects Black and North African origin individuals. And so she was telling me this story about how, you know, again, because she's a journalist, uh, she's an editor for a magazine. She took a, uh, the train to a town in southern France just for the day for some work-related meetings, and so therefore did not have any luggage or anything else uh, with her, you know, besides her just her regular work bag. And so then when her train arrived back at Paris, back in Paris at the end of the day, she said she was telling me how she was stopped by this uh, police officer and he was asking her all these questions about why, about why she would have luggage with her. He was like calling her, he, uh, he was calling her a whore. He was asking if she was smuggling drugs for someone, these sorts of things. And so she was saying beyond that, or she, when she explained this to me, she was saying beyond what was sort of humiliating about that experience was how she noticed, you know, she was the only person who was stopped leaving that train. Like all these other white people on the train were not stopped by the police officer, right? So so it was sort of a, a very sort of visceral, um, at least for her, way that demonstrated that she's not seen as sort of a normal or regular French person, right? Even though, you know, she, the reason why she was on the train is because she, you know, it's for, for her work. I mean, she has a sort of stable middle-class job. And so she's theoretically has done everything right and is to be sort of fully included, but it has continual reminders that it'll never be enough. 
no, there's so much in the, in this argument in, in the book that I'd like to discuss, but maybe one good place to start would be uh, to talk about what you uh, characterize in the book as the French racial project. You mentioned this in the book. So it seems that what you call the, the, the French racial project is obviously incompatible with the universalism right. um, of French republicanism uh, and is therefore rejected Right by the proponents of, of this ideology, including by the French state and, and its, its mm-hmm. leaders, administrators, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I wanted to flesh that out a little bit more. So um, h- how would you define this uh, unassumed French racial project? Yeah, um, thanks for that question. So the idea of the racial project is what I essentially did was take uh, Michael Almy and Howard Winans, uh, Howard Winans, my colleague here at uh, UC Santa Barbara, their framework of the racial project as a way to sort of like as a broader way of understanding race and sort of how uh, processes of racial formation operate outside of sort of official categories. So their framework is very much about or um, the United States and sort of the ways in which our ideas of race and racial categories have changed um, in the history of the United States. But I sort of in the book, I'm taking this concept to the, to the French context, and I found it really useful um, and a uh, because it allows me to sort of understand how are people sort of marked as different without these kinds of official categories or these sorts of solidified categories such as we might have them in the United States or even the UK. Um, so, for example, it allows me to think about the different ways at both micro and macro levels that difference is is marked uh, either implicitly or explicitly. So sort of like with the examples of SEPI I mentioned earlier, these kinds of everyday level interactions that remind people, that remind my respondents that they're not racialized as French. And simultaneously that, that, that what it means to be French is seen as synonymous with what it means to be white. And so it allowed me to really think about how all these processes of racial formation um, you know, for example, the solidifying of or the conflation between sort of being white and being French and sort of, you know, not being white and therefore not being French as operating outside of any sort of like, you know, state level discourse that this is happening. So this is like, you know, when my when Sophia can be asked, well, where are you from? Or where are you really, fr- really from? Right. The, the, the assumption is that, well, she can't be French because she's not read visibly as a, she's not visibly read as white and therefore she can't be a French person. Right. Um, and then also to think about um the, the uses, I guess, again, like the, the importance of the, the absence of a kind of official discourse of race and ethnicity, the idea of the racial project is also allow, it also allows me to get at the use of different proxies to get at these sort of racial and ethnic differences. So, for example, you know, the lack of a sort of official uh, language about or special vocabulary about race and ethnicity means that, you know, a lot of my respondents are referred to or sort of framed as foreigners, as immigrants, right? And so that's sort of a du- direct exclusion of them from French society. Or there's a lot of sort of references to, you know, my my respondents, uh, Maghreban origin individuals more generally as sort of under the sort of umbrella category of Muslim, right? So the, co- the category Muslim comes to have a specific, a particular kind of weight when you can't, when there isn't a sort of, you know, 
discourse of specific racial or ethnic or an acceptable discourse, I should say, of um, of racial and ethnic categories, right? So Muslim comes to be read as anyone who looks visibly different, who looks Arab, who looks black, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and not as a way to sort of get at the sort of heterogeneity of people who identify as Muslim um, in France. And then, you know, another example of that is the sort of use of geography or spatial arrangements. So, you know, people like my respondents being referred to based on living in the banlieue or the suburban outskirts of Paris and other cities, right? And that's seen as sort of like a physical or geographical location of a racial and ethnic otherness. And so I think that's a really good, those are all just examples of sort of how the, the racial project operates on both sort of macro and micro level. Level, sort of the ways that people are still made distinct outside of a sort of, you know, state discourse of these distinctions, even though that. So I'm, I guess I'm trying to sort of really tease apart with this idea of the racial product. I'm really trying to sort of tease apart how these di distinctions and differences are, are made real in, in the middle of a, of a state level ideology, which says that there aren't any of these differences. In a way, it's a sort of informal project. It's um, it's these categories that are activated. It's not right. that, that these things activate themselves. Uh, and from that activity, uh, a kind of informal project is generated on the one hand. And on the other hand, the, the official state categories uh, deny the legitimacy uh, of these categories, but then also sort of ignore them, right? So they kind of right. leave the, this project be in a way. Would that be right. accurate? Summer? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I think, right, all of this work is all this sort of, uh, this racial project is all operating in a context in which, you know, France, the French state, French Republican officials, um, et cetera, are saying that race does not exist in France. That race is not something that's real here. That race is something that exists, you know, in the United States or the UK or other societies. How can people be treated or feel like they're treated differently because of their race and ethnic origin while the state is saying, well, that doesn't even exist here, right? And so that's kind of what I'm trying to play with, with this idea of a racial project. Yeah, one place where uh, these categories are analyzed and examined more actively, I, I think, is on French French TV, political right. debates and things like that. Um, on that front, have you did you watch the, the relatively recent debate between um, Yassine Bellata and um, Eric Zemmour? Oh, this was on CNews. Oh, no, I didn't. No. Oh, okay. I, I think uh, this took place may maybe like a year ago. Uh, I think okay. it's from 2019. So so this is on CNews. And the main question of the debate was, um, what does it mean to be French today? So again, this was in right. 2019. Um, I, I watched this a little while ago. So just let me just briefly maybe summarize. Um, so the moderator introduced uh, Yassine Bellata um, and Zemmour, uh, Eric Zemmour as uh, sort of two... If I remember correctly, sons of the republic. Uh, you know, both are, uh, both were born in France. But now, in the course of the debate, uh, Bellata defined himself as Euro-African and French. Mm -hmm. Th those were the categories he was using. Um, and he was trying to say that basically, when he's in Europe or in Africa, he feels at home. That that he's okay and very happy with this kind of hybrid identity. But on the other hand, um, Zemmour, uh, and by the way, Bellatar and Zemmour, I mean, they're, they're both sort of prominent personalities uh, in, in French media. You know, they, they 
they comment on a lot of polit- political um, stuff. So Zemmour, you know, he he was criticizing Bellatin and actually sort of chastising him for what he perceived um, to be a, an unwillingness to subordinate all elements of his uh, identity to an exclusively French point of reference right. that would right. erase, uh, you know, or, or again, maybe not erase, but sub- definitely subordinate the other elements. Right. Um, so, so, you know, that, this is an example of really of a debate over uh, hybrid identities. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book, in the book, you talk about how French identity is signified. So, so this is where we see a kind of divergence again um, between the Republican ideal which is supposed to be universal, it's supposed to be non-racialized, and it's supposed to be non-racializing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then in practice, uh, in practice, you show in the book that this is this is exactly what happens in reality. Right. Uh, the, the racialized categories are there. They're right. very much active, uh, and the, the racializing is going on all the time. Uh, so, so could you say a few more words about sort of this gap between the theoretical way in which Frenchness is supposed to be signified and then how it's actually signified? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that question. It's another really great question. You know, I think the idea of the sort of of French identity, at the sort of theoretical versus the practice part of it. Um, that was one of the things I think probably was somewhat uh, surprising from my research, in the sense that I think, again, maybe thinking of this as a American or as a Black American specifically, I expected there to be more critique of French as an identity, as the identity that's supposed to uh, supersede all other identities. But actually, that wasn't the critique. The critique was more about sort of how French Republican ideology is really put into practice or really operationalized. You know, so just to give a sort of quick example of that uh, as it played out in my field work is that oftentimes people would wonder why I would identify as African-American because they'd say, well, you're just an American. You're, you know, I was born in the United States. I'm an American citizen. I've never, um, you know, I've never been a citizen of any other of any other country, um, and I've never actually even been to Africa. Or, um, so they were sort of saying, "Well, why would you identify as African American? You should just say you're American." And so for them, that's the. I mean, for the most for most of my respondents, that was sort of the political project of sort of like the idea of French republicanism or the idea that France, the being French, excuse me, subsumes all other identities. In and of itself, it's not a bad idea. The problem is it's not implemented correctly. So that's sort of how we get back to, as I mentioned earlier, Sophia having to sort of, you know, when she, people ask her where she's from and she, and she says Paris, like that's not a sufficient answer. And so that kind of gets at that. That's the problem. I mean, for, for the majority of my of my uh, respondents or interlocutors, like the issue is how can we make the ideology and the practice one and the same? But the ideology itself is not the problem. It's really the practice. And that was something that was really surprising to me because I thought, well, maybe they would want um, you know, some something akin to a kind of African-American identity that we have in the United States or some sort of, I mean, there's a little bit of movement around sort of an Afro-French identity or, uh, you know, a, a Maghreb-Ben uh, identity uh, in France or these sorts of things. And I think that those actually end up becoming 
responses to the fact that they're not subsumed in this ideology or this identity of, of being French. And so that's when you start to see these other kind of identities come in. But I think for them, the actual ideology and the practice um, uh, should be one and the same, right? So that like every French person, no matter what their sort of ethnic background is or ethnic origin or, or what have you, can still be seen as French as anyone else. In your research, in all the sort of all of the interactions you've had, all the debates and all the, you know, everything you've seen, um, have you seen anybody apply the theoretical categories uh, embedded in French republicanism? Uh, what do you mean apply them? Well, I mean, you know, someone who like, I don't know, maybe uh, some kind of a state initiative where they really try to make this into a reality. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's hard to think of an example. I mean, I think um, I remember the uh, Charlie Hebdo attacks and the sort of Jesse Charlie as supposed to be this kind of uh, unifying motto. But I think even then, it's very clear that there's only certain people, or at least, you know, among my respondents, they felt like there was only certain people who could be Charlie, right, who could fit under that motto. So even these things that are supposed to be kind of happening in real time in response to real events that are supposed to sort of um, be universalizing, apply to everyone, uh, very clearly or seen to not respond, uh, to not apply to everyone. And then I also think, you know, what one thing I see happening a lot in sort of just everyday discourse in France is kind of inversion of the sort of direction, if you will, of the exclusion. So by that, I mean, um, oftentimes it's framed as sort of like, well, these are people who, you know, don't want to be French, who don't try to integrate, who try who don't try to, you know, be part of French society for this reason or that reason or the other. And really what the other thing I was hoping to do with my book and with this work is to really kind of switch the direction of that argument to say, direction of that uh, relationship to say that really it's actually, they see themselves as French as other people don't accept them this way. They're not sort of mm. purposely trying to be outside of French society Rather, they feel like they're continually reminded that they are seen as outside of French society. So the question becomes less about like, um, you know, what can these these individual children of African or Maghreban immigrants do to sort of be included? It's more like, what is that? What are the barriers at the level of the state, at the level of society, to see them as French as, as they see themselves? There's also an interesting part in the book uh, where you talk about a more local identity um, in the south, in in the city of Marseille the port, right, the main port uh, on the Mediterranean. Um, so so this local I- Marseillais identity is a kind of maybe a sort of supra identity that is sort of above the French identity. Maybe that's one way to see it. Or maybe we could think of it as a, as a sort of identity that replaces Frenchness to some degree. So you give examples of this. Is there something like a Marseille Ness that competes with Frenchness? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think it's really interesting because if you think about sort of the construction of France as we now understand it, um, you know, in the, in the modern sense, you know, it was, among other things, an assimilation of different geographical regions, all of which had their own particularities and different, sometimes different dialects, sometimes different languages, etc. And so I think Marseille is like an example of almost a kind of a holdover from that. 
Um, But also, I think another way of thinking about the role of migration, particularly from the Maghreb and the role of sort of, you know, racial and ethnic difference in making up a particular kind of identity. And so I felt like with the Marseille example, it was a way for people to say, um, to attach themselves to a specific place that is very different from the rest of France as it relates to demographic composition, class back, class uh, demographics, et cetera, um, as a way to sort of subvert or avoid the sort of tensions around trying to identify or, you know, hoping to identify as front. You can sort of just like place your identity in this other place, which is, you know, not untrue, but I think then conjures up a particularly different kind of history, geography, uh, racial and ethnic composition, immigrant uh, concentration, et cetera. So I think when people think about or just sort of, you know, talk about France as, as a whole society, that's allowed to be um, the exception to the general rule. And there's a sort of, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, there's kind of a safety in that. The individuals who, who embraced uh, this identity, the Marseille identity, right? Would you say that for them, uh, this regional identity is in practice more inclusive than the Republican identity? Yeah, I do. I mean, I I would have to sort of do more research specifically in in Marseille just to say that uh, for say more about that. But I do think that, yeah, like I think, you know, insofar as French as an identity is not seen to is not able to include everyone who would want to access it or who would who would see themselves as French. I mean, that's definitely not the case with people who identify as as being from Marseille. Yeah. Right. So so all those exclusionary sort of uh, categories that come up when people try to categorize who's French and who's not, they seem to be at least dormant. um, And really what they foreground is is just being from Marseille, right? They identify as Marseille. And I think, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think also um, it's helpful to keep in mind that like my respondents who could could take on that identity often had very different upbringings or childhood experiences than the, than the rest of my respondents. So for example, um, you know, the majority of my respondents would have the experience of being, you know, one or two of the only, you know, what are two only uh, non-white families in the small town they grew up in or these sorts of things or sort of being othered in a school environment where they're like one of the only kids that's non-white. That wasn't the case for people from our size. So that's like a very different because of the demographics are so different. So I think also that shapes that also kind of shapes a different kind of trajectory in terms of sort of how people see themselves as adults. OK, so now we're at a part of the discussion where there's, you know, there's quite a few elements that, that we've discussed um, already. And I'd like to maybe bring some of those threads together and ask about this idea that you mentioned on page 74 in the book, uh, this idea of, as you call it, uh, the ontological nature of French identity. I, I, I want to unpack that. I find that really fascinating. Um, so first, I mean, here's, here's a few of the elements that, that I think we've talked about so far. So first we have the... Um, you know, there's the French Republican ideal of citizenship, and uh, it's supposed to be, again, non-racial, non-racializing, uh, and inclusive. It's supposed to be that in theory. Uh, second, um, there's the discrimination faced by people um, who are perceived 
to have um, North African origins. Mm -hmm. um, then we have these, as, as a third element maybe, we have these local identities like uh, the one in Marseille. And, and I guess, you know, one could make an argument that, that these regional identities exist elsewhere across France as well. Fourth, there are people who embrace a, a form of hybrid identity. And I think most of the, most of the, um, the, the, the individuals that you spoke with uh, embrace some, some form of, a hybrid identity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then fifth, you know, the final bit, there are a few uh, people of North African origin who rejected French identity completely, mm -hmm. right? There are a few in the book that you mentioned, but again, yeah. very few. The vast majority of people that you mentioned, the vast majority of them very much identify as French. So, the book gives us a good sense of reality, right? Of, of a kind of ontology. Uh, in other words, you show in the book how things really are, mm -hmm. uh, what the experiences really are. Uh, so it boils down to this. Again, the vast majority of, of people are of North African origin see themselves as French, mm -hmm. and they see Frenchness as something that frames their lives, how they live. Now, that that very real sort of, ontological Frenchness is denied by those who see them as being somehow different, as being outsiders. Yes. Now, now, so both of these, both, both those who experience, who live this ontological Frenchness and those who deny it, I think, you know, most of them probably still accept the French Republican ideal. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> so, so this right. seems to be, um, I mean, it seems to be paradoxical, um, but I, I'm, I might be getting it wrong. Um, so, you know, do you do you see a, a kind of paradox here? And, and how would you? I mean, how would you describe these tensions um, more broadly? Like, what, yeah. in other words, in other words, what is at the very root of this? What's stopping these uh, the universalism embedded in French republicanism from fully unfolding? Since, in fact, I mean, I guess, sorry, I'm kind of extending this question, but it seems to me that that theoretical, uh, you know, taking looking at it from the perspective of those who use uh, the racialized, uh, the more uh, restrictive categories, right? Uh, they seem to want to embrace the theoretical republicanism. Mm -hmm. And deny a reality that seems to be sort of um, uh, applying those, right? In other words, the lives of those individuals of North African origin uh, show that they are in fact living, they're putting into practice that universalism, right? Mm -hmm. But then uh, when they turn around, they see that itself being denied by people who in theory accept the French Republican ideal, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, no, I really like the way that you, you've laid that out. I mean, I think a couple of things, I guess I would say in response. I mean, one is I think it gets at the sort of uh, power, quote unquote, of French Republican ideology, right? That even people who are marginalized by it so very much embrace it. And, that, and, then, and then in that sense, I, you know, just kind of uh, uh, pulling back a bit, I mean, it's not that distinct from how other marginalized populations relate to ideologies. So for example, I'm just thinking about the United States because I'm, I'm American um, and I, I live here. Um, you know, it's very, I found it to be very similar to previous other work on um, African-Americans understanding of the quote unquote American dream, um, which is to say that they oftentimes very much believe in it, despite the fact that they are, you know, 
victims of, you know, both past and present structural discrimination and exclusion, right? And so I think it's a similar kind of idea here um, in, in, in my book of sort of how people still see themselves or still feel like that the French Republican model is, the French Republican ideology is the sort of best ideology, is the one that makes the most sense for a variety of reasons, but that even though they are, are excluded from it. Uh, but what's also, but I also think the other thing I would say to what you, what you just laid out is um, the role of the colonial here because I think one of the things that came out in some of my interviews as well was sort of, even if we sort of think about, you know, what does it mean to be French? Um, you know, part of the product of colonialism sort of in general is, you know, that these were colonial subjects, right? So that people from who, who lived in Algeria were considered French, right? And so there's a way in which, you know, some of my respondents would be like, well, I actually am like, not just like French, I'm like very French because, you know, my ancestors are from, you know, wherever in Algeria um, that was actually part and parcel of what is France, right? And so it's like not even a distinction of sort of, uh, or it's not just a dis distinction, I can say it this way, uh, of just sort of um, not being included because they're not white, but also sort of the sort of, paradox of it, I think, comes in when you think about the fact that, like, part of the colonial empire was that they were part, I mean, they were seen as, I mean, they weren't seen as French, but they were sort of part of the French colonial empire, right? And so, like, to sort of deny the sort of descendants of the colonial empire inclusion into, you know, French identity or full acceptance as French, it's like sort of another kind of layer of hypocrisy, if you will, onto the existing uh, questions of sort of racial and ethnic exclusion in France. So, so on the one hand, we have the, the sort of the legacy of uh, imperial categories. So some of those imperial categories... Uh, remain um, active in, in some way, right? Um, right? And on the other hand, but on the other hand, doesn't it seem that the only way to really escape all these series of impasses here would be to, to get rid of those exclusionary uh, racialized and racist categories, right? And, and it seems that those are not disappearing. And again, when I say those are not disappearing, and when I say that some people are, you know, using these exclusionary discriminatory categories, I'm referring to the examples that you bring up. I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, <laughs> everybody in France um, does this, right? But, but right. again, you bring up, uh, you bring up a whole series of, of uh, there's a whole pattern that you've discovered right. of, of, of this happening in practice. So in a way then, so it would be sort of history, the imperial legacy on the one hand, and the persistence of these racial categories on the other. Those are maybe the two stumbling blocks that prevent the kind of full and uniform unfolding of, of re republicanism um, in France. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, both the kind of France's colonial history, but I think um, and sort of, you know, colonial uh, slavery in the colonies as well, but also sort of um, the ways in which France has chosen to not acknowledge that history in a kind of somewhat puzzling way for me, at least as an outsider. So therefore, like, you know, anyone that's seen as sort of remotely related to this colonial history or this colonial, this former colonial empire is seen as suspect. And so like the way that France imagines itself is really just the sort of um, the geographical boundaries around the country that is France now, but not sort of with any other relationship to anywhere else. 
to, to bring up the example you used earlier um, to kind of maybe see how this works. So would you say that that example you mentioned, you said, uh, you know, you go to a store and somebody's following you. Mm-hmm. And then when they when they realize that you come from a completely different context, mm-hmm. uh, th- those categories kind of uh, they drop those categories. So, mm-hmm. so is that is that what's happening when they sort of, so yeah. initially they were kind of putting you into those quote unquote imperial categories. Right. That sort of trajectory. And then, then I mean, when you spoke with them, that's what took you out. Is is would you? I mean, would that work? Yeah, no, I think that's a great example. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like once I spoke, and it was sort of like you know, obviously I had um, an American accent of some kind. It was sort of like I wasn't making the same claim to being a French person as you know, as a shopkeeper was who was you know talking to me or engaging with me, right? Like I was seen in that case as a sort of you know as an American tourist or an American college student or what have you, and it did it wasn't a specific kind of claim to France as a nation state. The same way that you know, if I were um, a black French person, if I were sort of a second generation Malayan uh, immigrant, for example, like how that might have triggered responses because the assumption there would have been um, intruding onto or making a claim to to French society, to France as a nation state, to be fully seen as French as a shopkeeper. But as an American tourist or an American college student, I you know obviously wasn't doing that. Okay, so we only have uh, about two minutes left here, um, and uh, the one element that we didn't really develop um, is the role of Islam in this as well. Yeah. Um, but I guess for that, people will just have to—they'll have to read the book. <laughs> uh, but let me let me maybe end by asking you about uh, if you could tell us a little bit about any current uh, projects that you have or, or future projects you're working on. Yeah. So, um, my, my ongoing sort of, well, eventually my second book, um, that's been kind of, I've been working on for a little bit is sort of thinking about the state of anti-racist mobilization in France. So very similar to the example I mentioned earlier of Sophia being stopped on that train and sort of being asked for her identity, uh, and sort of what she was doing, et cetera, et cetera, why she didn't have luggage with her. I sort of found that uh, these kinds of things are not totally uncommon. And more generally, I started learning in recent years of various sort of high profile incidents of police violence, police harassment, uh, particularly Maghreban and black individuals in France. So partly what I'm doing is, um, what I'm working on now is sort of charting that history specifically from, well, I mean, there's a thinking about the colonial origins, um, absolutely, but also specifically thinking about the 2005 uprisings in various banlieues, which I, you know, remember hearing about um, years ago when they when they happened, but did not hear as much about the sort of police violence or the police incident that triggered um, those uprisings. So the death of the two teenagers who were actually fleeing police, you know, ostensibly for an identification check. And so that got me thinking a lot about, like, how common these kind of identity checks are. And, you know, sometimes they lead to death, uh, but, you know, other times they they don't. But it's, I think, another way that um, this sort of, you know, suspect belonging, this kind of suspicion of, like, who someone is, are they really French, are they really part of French society, is, is maintained or reinforced. So I'm really, I'm working on that. And then in tandem with that, I'm also thinking about, well, how do people, how do these individuals um, mobilize or fight against this kind of police brutality, police harassment, police violence, in a context in which we, um, the language, the vocabulary for talking about 
racism and discrimination is not the same as it is in other places. So I've been doing, uh, I'm an ethnographer, but that's my primary method. So I've been doing a lot of participant observation at different uh, protests against police brutality and police violence, doing a lot of interviews with activists. How do you fight against racism when you know, race doesn't exist, for example, is sort of the overarching question. Okay, well, uh, we're, we're out of time. So um, let me just uh, thank you again uh, for taking the time to talk to us about um, your work. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation.